is awesome. I, I love celebrating moms. There's such a difference between moms and dads. Am I right? Uh, amen. I heard I, there's truth to that, right? Like I think about dads, like, like it's a pride thing for a dad. A dad would say, man, if, I, if my kid's life was at risk, I would give my life for my kids, right? Any dad, like dads, you would, how many of you would give your life for your kids? Like all these dads raise their hands and that is so true. But here's the difference between moms and dads. Dads would give their life for their kids, but what do moms do? Moms actually live for their kids, right? Like, can we just say, like, that would be the difference? Like, Dad, see us, of course, I'd sacrifice. Moms are like, yeah, that's great, but I will actually live my life for my kids. In fact, there's an article I read this week, and, and there's some, again, here's the difference. I'm not trying, to, I'm not trying to, to create animosity between moms and dads, but this is statistically true, okay? An online article, moms are 15% more likely than dads to skip meals in order to provide for their families, all right, again, gentlemen, we're like, okay, yeah, my, my would probably be better than that than me, yeah, that she, yeah. Another one, moms are 35% more likely than dads to sacrifice time with their friends in order to be with their kids, all right? 35% more likely to not hang out with their friends so they can be with their kids. So let me just say this, moms, yeah, dads may be the ones that say, I'll sacrifice. Moms are the ones who actually live for their kids. I remember probably when I saw it most in, in my family, uh, my wife made this, uh, this banana cream pie. Now, we lo- like I'm a pie guy. I'm a pie guy. So my wife made this banana cream pie and, and we're dishing it up and we go for seconds and there's just a little bit of pie left. And I'm like, what do I do? My kids are in line. They're like, we want some pie. My wife's like, I want some pie. So I, I get the biggest piece of pie and I put it on my plate and I div up the rest of it for the kids, right? And then I look at my wife. My wife had this small piece of pie and she liked it. And I watch as I'm eating my big old fat piece of banana cream pie and my wife looks at my kids and one of my kids is like, oh, I didn't get a big piece. So what does my wife do? She takes her pie and cuts it in half and gives it, oh, no, wait, wait a second, Sam, what are you doing? And, and, and I, I had to come to the realization like, I'm a pretty selfish man, right? Like, here I am. Like, I'm the guy. I'm the dad. I'm supposed to sacrifice for my family. And I take the biggest piece of pie for myself. And my wife takes a small piece of pie. And not only that, she gives half of that piece of pie to the kids as well. Moms, you guys are great. Dads might sacrifice for their kids. Moms will actually live their life for their kids. In fact, it made me think about uh, the TV show Alone. Yeah, Anybody ever watched the TV show Alone? Like, it's a pretty fascinating show. What happens is they pick these guys up, and they put them in a helicopter, and they take them to some remote region of the Arctic, someplace far away, away from everybody else. And they give them, like, like a handful of survival tools, you know, like maybe an axe and a leatherman, and they drop them off, and they see how long these people can survive all alone without any other help, just by themselves in the wilderness. It's a pretty remarkable show. In, in season six, uh, there was a guy by the name of Jordan Joden, Jonas who was dropped in the Canadian Arctic. And he survived 77 days on his own before everybody else on the TV show quit. And he won the season and won a bunch of money and it was pretty exciting. Now, what's, what, what, what I loved about the season though is this guy, uh, Jonas, the, the, in every season, the question is, how are these guys gonna eat, right? Because you're in the wilderness 
and, and you don't, it's not like you have a firearm. They give you like maybe a bow and arrow and, and maybe a leatherman. And so the question is, how are you going to get food to provide for yourself? And, and in this season, uh, this guy, Jordan Jonas, actually was able to hunt a moose. And he survived on the meat from the moose. And it was interesting because I'm watching the show and they're like, hey, this guy was so lucky. He was so lucky that he got this moose and that was how he was able to survive and he won the show because he just by luck was able to get this moose. Well, I watched this, or I listened to this podcast with uh, uh, Jordan Jonas. He's a guy who actually loves Jesus. And he said, you know, what's so funny is they thought this moose was a uh, response of luck. It was just luck that I got this moose. And he said, it wasn't luck. He said, I spent years in Siberia working with traditional nomadic reindeer herders. Do you know that's an actual thing? Traditional nomadic reindeer herders. That's a job. That is a thing. Like, who would not want to do that? And he's like, I spent years working with these nomadic reindeer herders, and I learned all this stuff. I learned how to hunt and survive and live in the wild. So when they threw me into the Arctic, man, all those years of training played a part in it. He said, so when they dropped me off in this Canadian Arctic, he said, I was able to kind of read the terrain. I knew where the game trails were. I knew where the animals would go. And then I spent all those years, I learned how to make those moose calls. And I'm not even going to try and make one because I'd embarrass myself. But he said, I was calling those moose for weeks trying to get them to come to me. And he said, then finally, one of the moose, they came near me, and I took a shot with my little rustic bow and arrow, and I missed. But he said, when I shot at that, that moose, I watched him run off, and he ran to this narrow, narrow little pathway. And I thought, that's it. And so he noticed that when this moose ran, moose ran into the pathway, he's like, man, and he built a fence. So the next time a moose came, it would have to turn back. And he said, that was a point. That moose came and it tried to go through that narrow pathway and my fence was there and the moose turned back. And that was when I was able to, to hunt the moose and kill the moose so I could eat and survive. And he said, after all that, is it luck that I got the moose? Or was it by chance that Jordan has spent a lifetime in preparation that led up to that pivotal moment? This is why I think about Acts chapter 6 and Acts chapter 7. Jacob read for us the story of Stephen, who's the first martyr of the Christian church. And oftentimes, when we hear this story in church, we're like, be like Stephen and die for your faith. We should be willing to suffer and die for our faith. And it's great, but, but, but the problem is we tell the story, like, it's kind of like, like high school English class. I don't know if this is you, but like you don't show up all semester long. And then you show up to the final and you're like, oh, as long as I take the final, I'm good. And we kind of think that's the story of Stephen where he's out doing his own thing. And then someday he shows up and God says, hey, will you die for me? And Stephen's like, sure, I'll die for you. And then we celebrate Stephen and say, be like Stephen. But that's, here's the thing. That's not Stephen's life. Stephen's willingness to be a martyr and to die for his faith wasn't a random opportunity. No, he spent a lifetime living for Jesus. He had that preparation of being dedicated to God and living for Jesus so that at that moment when the opportunity presented itself, he was prepared 
to take that test and say, yes, I'm willing to sacrifice my life and stand firm for my faith. I think about how many times we read this story and it's all about be a martyr, be a martyr. And that's good. But maybe the bigger idea is the preparation that Stephen took to prepare him for that moment. We've been in the, the book of Acts for a, a couple of, of months now, and uh, we're going to be in the book, book of Acts for probably the rest of the year, kind of looking at the early church. As we look at the early church started, and we're like, hey, how could we have the same power and impact as the early church? Like, that would be my desire for Restoration Church, is that God would use us like the early church, that we would become a movement that affects everything around us. I want to see our families impacted because of Jesus. I want to see our neighborhoods and our city and our state and our country impacted because of uh, Jesus, just like the early church impacted everything around them. And at this point, as we're in the sixth chapter of, uh, sixth and seventh chapter, we've seen, man, the church is on fire. Like thousands of people are getting saved and placing their faith in Jesus and coming to the church. And it is, is awesome. They're serving together. There's unity in the church. It's a beautiful thing. But our, as soon as you get to Acts chapter 7, we see this transition where op- the opposition to the church takes a turning point. Stephen, again, he's the first Christian martyr. And again, if we were going to read a devotional on Acts chapter 7, Acts chapter 6 and 7, the question would be for you. How would you respond to the possibility of dying because you are a follower of Jesus? How would you respond to the possibility of dying because you are a follower of Jesus? And of course, just like all dads, we're like, of course I would die. Of course, of course I would sacrifice my life because of God. Now here's the thing, though. We're asking that question from the comfort of the United States. We're here in America. We have all sorts of religious freedoms. And while we can ask that question, would you be willing to die for your faith? Like, let's just be real. It's not something that most of us are really going to have to face, right? I mean, that's a theoretical, oh, if the opportunity came, but... Do we actually know anybody in the United States who's ever been faced with that question of, would you be willing to die for your faith? Maybe a better question is, maybe the better question is, are you actually willing to live for Jesus? Are you actually willing to live for Jesus? You see, all of us are living for something. There's a story that we are living for. There's, a, there's a, a story that we are pursuing that we think it's a narrative, that we believe this is where the good life is. We all have this thing in our life that we're pursuing and we're saying, man, uh, whatever it is, this is a good life. And it shapes how we live. It shapes, uh, it shapes our identity. The question for you this morning is what story are you living for? Oftentimes, that story is related to any sorts of things. Our story is related to our career. I want to be successful. I want to be successful, and so I'm going to shape my life off my career. Or we, we say, I'm going to pursue uh, financial freedom. I'm going to, shoot, I'm going to pursue uh, just finances to where I don't have to struggle anymore. Or we pursue uh, status or power or fame or we live our life trying to get other people to view us in a certain way, right? We want to be viewed as being 
successful or look at all we've overcome or, or look how strong we are or, or these things. And so we, we shape our life for the story that we're trying to pursue. That's going to make our life right. And it's not just in our personal lives. Organizations live out the same type of story. Nations, countries live out that story. I mean, let's just talk about the American dream, right? The American dream says uh, that we are entitled to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, regardless of the cost. In our country, there's a story that our country lives out that we're pursuing the American dream where we can come from nothing and become successful. It's a story that we pursue, a story that we tell ourselves, if we get this, then we'll be okay. All of us have that story that we are living for, a particular vision of what matters most in life. In fact, this would be what would control us. You see, we don't control ourselves. We like to think that we're so self-controlled that we control ourselves, but no, actually what we're controlled by is whatever is Lord of our life. Lord of our life is, is kind of another way of saying whatever story you're pursuing that's going to make your life right, that is your Lord. And your Lord, whatever is your Lord, that is who and what you are living for. And ultimately, that Lord is who or what you're willing to die for. And this is why I love the story of Stephen in Acts chapter 6 and 7. Because Stephen was absolutely, absolutely willing to die for his faith. But more importantly... Stephen spent his lifetime actually living for Jesus. He lived for his faith. And the story of Stephen is going to teach us that there is one story that is worth us living for and dying for. There's one Lord that's worth us living for and dying for. There's one pursuit in life that will make us satisfied with God, that will make this life complete. And it's not a career or family or power or money it is a relationship with Jesus Christ. That is a story that is worth us living for and if need be, dying for. So we'll start out Acts chapter 6, starting at verse 7. And it says, The word of God spread, and the disciples in Jerusalem, they increased in number, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. That's kind of a summary statement. Here's what's happening in the book of Acts. Here's what's happening in the early church. And then verse 8, it says, And Stephen... See, oftentimes as we're reading through this story, we think Stephen's kind of like this bonus story. Like, it's kind of like a story the author kind of threw in. It's like, here's an extra story just for you to read because it's a cool story. But that's not the case. Stephen is connected to what's happening in the early church because the story of Stephen is a pivotal point. It is a pivotal point where the church is going to take the message of Jesus from Jerusalem. And because, in large part, because of what happened to Stephen... That early church is going to take that message of Jesus from Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth, culminating and reaching to Yakima, where we're talking about that same name today because those Christians took that message from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. So Stephen, we see him here, uh, is connected to what's happening in the early church we're first introduced to Stephen, actually a couple verses before, in Acts chapter 6, uh, where it describes Stephen as living for Jesus. The apostles, remember that story two weeks ago? The apostles were uh, uh, presented with the issue of the Meals on Wheels program. They had the widows that they're trying to provide for, and they're like, hey, we can't take care of everything. As the apostles, we're supposed to dedicate ourselves to the preaching of the word and the prayers, 
And so what do the apostles do? They look for men, seven men from the church. Men who had a good reputation, who are known as being full of the spirit and full of wisdom. And these people, they said, hey, would you come? Would you run the Meals on Wheels program? And Stephen is one of those seven that the apostles chose to run that Meals on Wheels program. They're driving the taco truck around, making sure all the widows have plenty to eat. I don't know if it was really a taco truck. I just like to picture it being a taco truck. Because like, yeah, come on, right? Come on now. So we see Stephen had this reputation already in the church and among the apostles. He had a reputation of being a servant, of being a man who was full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom. But look what it says in verse 8. Stephen, listen to this, full of grace and full of power, was doing great signs and wonders among the people. Some of those from the synagogue of the freedmen, freedmen, they rose up and they disputed with Stephen. Verse 10, but they could not withstand his wisdom, the spirit which Stephen spoke. See, Three things we learn about Stephen from those couple of verses. Number one, we learn that Stephen was full of grace. What does it mean to be full of grace? To be full of grace means that Stephen had a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. He understood, hey, my faith in Jesus, my, my relationship with Jesus, it's not because of what I've done. It's not because I'm such a good person. It's not because I've gone to church and I put some money in the offering basket. It's not because I've helped some old lady across the street. It's not because I kept all the religious rules. No, as a man full of grace, he understood his relationship with Jesus was because of what Jesus has done for him. It wasn't him earning it. It was the grace of God, the unmerited favor. The fact that Jesus went to the cross on Stephen's behalf to pay the penalty for his sin. So he's received this this grace of Jesus. But here's the thing that we've got to understand. When you receive that grace, when you've become a Christian, that grace actually flows through you to other people, right? We've talked about this the last couple of weeks, that one of the marks of being a Christian is it changes how we view other people. This is why Scripture, this is why Jesus said, they will know you are a Christian by how you keep all the rules. No, no. Uh, They'll know you're a Christian by the fact that you go to church. No, that's not it either. They'll know you're a Christian because you've got the Christian tattoo, No, that's not it. No, they will know you're a Christian by your love and how you love other people. And I think this is why it says Stephen was a man full of grace because he received that grace and naturally that grace flowed through him to the people around him. It says in verse 15, same story. He said, those that looked on Stephen, they saw that he had the face of an angel. Closest thing to an angel I've seen is my wife. And so I just think that's beautiful, right? But I think that idea is, is, is there was this grace that embodied him, this love that embodied him, that people could see in him. In fact, at the end of chapter 7, while Stephen is being stoned, this is what it says, that like Jesus, he prayed and said, God, do not hold this against them. See, even the very people who are taking his life, what is he doing? sending grace to them. He's praying for them. God, would you forgive them? Now he's a man full of grace. But not only that, Stephen is a man full of power. Full of power. Instead of verse 8, full of power, doing signs and wonders among the people. See, this is 
This is maybe the secret to the Christian life, and it's maybe it's not really a secret. We like to think it is, but it's not a secret. The, the, the secret to the Christian life, that for us to be what we ought to be, for us to do what we ought to do, is not us living in our own strength and our own power. It is us living in the power of God in us, allowing the Holy Spirit to flow through us. That's where this power is. He says he's full of power. It's not his own power, his own strength. He's allowing the power of God to work through him to enable him to be what he ought to be and to do what he ought to do. Listen, do you understand? Like that's the Christian life. It's not us trying so hard to to be all those things and do all those things and and be this type, type of Christian person. No, the Christian life is us allowing God to work through us. And that's the power that we have that enables us to be what we ought to be and do what we ought to do. And finally, it said he was a man full of wisdom. See, I have this picture that Stephen is serving in the church. He's serving in the synagogue. And there are some people that arose and they're arguing with Stephen. They're like, Stephen, why are you talking about this Jesus Like, why do you talk about the grace of Jesus? No, Stephen, don't you know you've got to keep all the religious rules? But Stephen, full of wisdom, which means he had an understanding and insight into the scriptures. He he could turn the scriptures and say, hey, this is what scripture is talking about. It's pointing us to Jesus. It's pointing us to a relationship with him. And he had such wisdom from the scriptures and insight that it says those that tried to refute him, they couldn't, they couldn't resist. They were dumbfounded because of the wisdom that God had given Stephen because of the scriptures. Again, this is where in the church we love to point to Stephen and say, be a martyr. Go sacrifice your life for Jesus. And, and I'm like, yeah, that's good. Go do that. But Stephen isn't just a martyr. He's much more than a martyr. Stephen is a servant and a leader in the church. In a real sense, Stephen wasn't just willing to die for his faith. He's willing to live for his faith. You see him willing to live for Jesus. He had one story, one Lord that was dictating how he lived his life. And it wasn't himself. He's not trying to pursue glory and and a successful career and fame and money and all those things. No, his life was dedicated to one thing, and that's Jesus living for Jesus, growing in Jesus, defending Jesus. And I'll be honest, I think it's harder for us to actually live our life for Jesus than just to be people who are willing to say, I'd be a martyr. Isn't it harder for us to actually live for him? In fact, let me ask you this question. What is your story? What is the Lord of your life? What is the thing in this life that will give you meaning and purpose. Because again, I think most of us would say we'd love to be that person like those dads. I'll, I'll sacrifice my life for God. But the bigger question, are you actually willing to live for him? To let him be the one story you're pursuing that's going to make your life right? Well, Stephen is living for Jesus. He's living for Jesus and it creates some Opposition. Verse 11 says his opponents, they secretly instigated men who who said, we heard him say blasphemous words against Moses and God. Verse 12, they stirred up people and scribes and elders who seized him and brought him to court and set up false witnesses, saying, we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and the custom that Moses had delivered to us. 
Do you notice there's some similarities to how Stephen's critics respond and to the critics of Jesus responded? These people that were opposing Stephen, they couldn't, they couldn't uh, accuse Stephen based on his godly character or in his actions. So like Jesus, they had to fed up, set up false witnesses to accuse him of speaking blasphemy against God, against Moses, against the law, against the land, against the temple. And so they drag Stephen into court. And we're not talking about like county court. We're not talking about like the Yakima police. No, we're talking like to the Sanhedrin. This is like the high court, the Supreme Court. They drag him into the Supreme Court. And the high priest says in verse one, he says, are these things so? Basically, if you can picture that court scene, you've seen those court TV shows, those court movies. Stephen's brought before the, the judge, and the judge is like, hey, you've been accused of blasphemy against God, against Moses, against the temple, against the law, against the scriptures. How do you plead? And I love this because rather than defending himself, I mean, you picture Stephen and be like, dude, I didn't do to say those things. What are you talking about? Those guys are lying. But rather than defending himself, Stephen's going to preach a sermon. In fact, this is the longest sermon in the book of Acts. So we're going to make today the longest. No, we're not going to do that too, because there's other things going on today. I, I get that. <laughs> but he's going to preach a sermon that addresses the religious authorities. See, these religious authorities, the story of their life was based on this simply, hey, God will bless us and our life will be right if we live in the Holy Land, if we keep the law, and if we go to the temple. I mean, these were the three things. The religious authorities, they were set on this, that this is what made them right with God. This is what made life uh, right. This is what would make them satisfied and have peace was the fact that they lived in the land, that if they kept the law, and if they went to the temple. And so what Stephen's going to do is he's going to preach a sermon where he's going to take the story of the Old Testament, salvation for the Old Testament. He's going to look at Abraham and the patriarchs and Joseph and Jacob and Moses He's going to look at the law that, that God gave, all the rules that they had to follow. He's going to look at the temple. And he's going to say, listen, listen, listen. Listen, you religious authorities. You've built your life on these things. And Stephen's going to take the Old Testament and say, listen, those things were never meant to be the story that made your life right. Those things were never meant to be the center of the story. Those things all pointed to Jesus. And you missed it. You missed it. You miss that those things weren't there to make your life right. They're meant to point you to Jesus. Now again, because this is the longest sermon in the book of Acts, I'm going to summarize it for you. Uh, that way we can move on to other things later today. And so there's three things. The first one, uh, Stephen's first point, is he's saying, listen, God isn't going to bless you simply because uh, you live in the promised land. I mean, this is what the religious leaders thought. The authorities saw, hey, because we're in the promised land, because we're in Israel, God has to bless us. And Stephen says, no, that's not the way it works. He points to Abraham in verses two through eight. Abraham, God made a promise to Abraham and said, I'm gonna give you this land. But, but Abraham never stepped foot in the land. Abraham never once stepped foot in that promised land, yet God blessed him. Stephen's like, hey, does that make sense to you? That God's blessing was there to Abraham before Abraham ever stepped in the promised land. And then he points to, to, to Jacob 
And Jacob had those 12 sons. Remember what the 12 sons, remember that story? This is verses uh, 9 through 16. Will they sell Joseph to be a slave into Egypt? And Joseph is in Egypt. He goes to prison. He gets, uh, answers the, uh, solves the, 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 the dream from the Pharaoh. And, and Joseph gets appointed to number two in command of all of Egypt. And so Stephen says, hey, look, God blessed Jacob's family through Joseph. And where was Joseph at? Was he in the promised land? No, Joseph was in Egypt. Joseph was in a godless place, and God blessed him. And then, he, then verse 17 to 36, he points to Moses. He said, listen, listen, people, God was with Moses. And where was Moses? Moses was in Egypt. He grew up in Egypt, and God blessed him there. And then Moses goes to Midian as an exile, and guess what? God blessed him there. In fact, that's a story where, remember, when God speaks to Moses through the burning bush, and God says, listen, Moses, take your sandals off because where you're standing is holy ground. Where is that at? Is that in the promised land? No, that's not in the promised land. That's in Midian. That's in another godless country. And then God blesses Moses as they cross the Red Sea, as they go into the wilderness, as they go into the desert. Stephen's trying to teach these people, listen, God's blessing isn't limited to just this promised land. It's so much bigger than that. And then a second point. Again, these are the people who took their confidence with God because they could keep the law, or they could try to keep the law. So Stephen's like, hey, that's not the way it works. Verse 37, he says, actually, when Moses was giving the law, this is what Moses said. Moses said, there's going to be a prophet that's going to come who's going to be like me. There's going to be one who's coming who's going to be your savior. But the people didn't get it. They didn't understand what Moses was saying. They rejected Moses. They rejected his word. And then when Moses is on the mountain, uh, he's on the mountain, he's receiving the, the, the law from God. He's, God's visibly, uh, speakingly, audibly given, given the tablets. And remember what the people are doing on the mountain? They reject Moses and they tell Aaron, hey, we want you to make us a golden calf and we're gonna worship the golden calf, Right? Stephen's like, hey, listen, listen, listen. You guys think that the law is so significant, but you've rejected the law from the very beginning. The law wasn't there to, to show you how you can be made right with God. The law was there to point you to the fact that you need a savior. You're missing the fact that the law doesn't make you right with God. It's there to point you to Jesus, and you guys have missed it. Again and again, you've missed it. And finally, he comes to the temple. He said, I know you people think that you're right with God because you go to church, because you go to the temple. <coughs> but verses 48 to 50, Stephen quotes from Isaiah, saying, God says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. He said, listen, you dummies. God is a creator of all things. God doesn't live in buildings built by men. This is why in the book of Acts, we're seeing the Holy Spirit has come and taken residence in, in, in Peter and John and all these apostles and the early church and the Holy Spirit comes upon them. Why? Because God doesn't, reside, God doesn't reside in buildings. He resides in the hearts of men. And Peter's like, hey, you religious leaders, you got it all wrong. You're living for the wrong story. You're putting your confidence in the wrong things. <clears throat> and the culmination of the sermon Verse 51, 
Stephen says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in your heart and your ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit just as your ancestors did. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Yet you have killed those announcing the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. Stephen says to these religious leaders, man, you guys have been living. The story you've been living for was that because you live in Israel, because you've tried to keep the law, because you go worship in the temple, that, that you think that makes you right with God. You think that makes your life right. And Stephen says, no, you're living for the wrong story. You're living for the wrong purpose. Those things will not make you right with God. Those things are there to point you to Jesus, the Savior. But he says, you guys were too stubborn. You resisted what the prophets said. They pointed to Jesus, but you resisted it. You resisted the fact that the law isn't there for you to try and keep it. The law was there to point you to the fact that you need a Savior. But you've rejected Jesus. In fact, you betrayed Jesus and murdered him. Stephen says you're guilty of this. Stephen finishes a sermon and the response is not very good. Verse 54, it says, When they heard these things, they were enraged and they gnashed their teeth together. They yelled at the top of their voices and they covered their ears. I, you hear that? I think of toddlers. It says that they, they, they covered their ears and they're yelling. They're like, I'm not listening to you anymore. <laughs> I'm not listening anymore. Verse 8 says they dragged him out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man by the name of Saul, a guy who's, we're going to hear his story in a couple of weeks, and it's going to be a banger. I promise that. And there's Stephen, stoned, and he dies for his faith. And it's a great story, and God is going to use Stephen's death, again, to send the church to the ends of the earth. And as we hear the story of Stephen, man, his death has, has encouraged the church for 2,000 years. And the church has, has all said, man, we hope that we would be like Stephen. We hope that we'd be willing to give our life for our faith just like him. But if that's all we get from the story of Stephen, is hoping that we would be martyrs for our faith, I think you miss out on the depth of his story. I think you miss out on the significance of his life. Because I think the story of Stephen, I think this is our summary for this message. The story of Stephen teaches us more than, more than just about being a martyr. The story of Stephen teaches us that Jesus is the only story, is the only Lord that is worth us living for and if need be, dying for. Now Jesus is the one, Jesus is the only one that's worth us living for. And if by chance we need to die for, it's worth that as well. Because there may come a day, there may come a day, where in our country, like many other countries, we're going to be faced with some incredible persecution. We might have to stand up and risk our life for our faith, much like Stephen. And we want to believe we'd rise to the occasion, and I think many of us probably would. But I think the bigger question for us is are we willing to live for him now? 
Because again, we love that idea that when the final test comes, we're going to stand up and be ready for it. But the question is, kind of like Jordan Jonas, will we live our life in a way that prepares us for that moment? Will we live our life now for Jesus and allow him to shape how we live in the here and now? And trust that if we live for him now, that he will give us that peace, that joy, that confidence, that courage to do whatever he calls us to do. So let me ask you this. What story are you living for? What is the Lord of your life? What is it in your life that you think is going to give you joy and peace and satisfaction and purpose? Is it living for yourself? Is it taking the biggest piece of pie because you're most significant? Is it living for money or power or status? Or are you actually living for the only story that is worth living for? Are you living for the one Lord that will make your life complete? And that's Jesus. See, I think we look at the story of Stephen, and I think we can be challenged to say, man, what is our life characterized by? What is your life characterized by? Is it your career? Is it your family? Is it how strong you are and all the things you've overcome? Is it your popularity, your looks, whatever it happens to be? Or is your life characterized like Stephen as a man who is living for God? Are you known as a person of grace like Stephen was? Have you experienced the grace of God in your life? The unmerited favor, which means it's the blessing of God that you can't earn. That God gives this grace to you, this blessing, this peace to you, not because you're awesome, not because you're worth it, not because you're worthy, not because you've earned it, but simply because God loves you. Have you received that kind of grace and that freedom? Where you, you're, not this, you're not this rat in the wheel trying to earn your favor and earn God's blessing, but just have you received God's unmerited favor, his grace in your life? Because I tell you what, there's a freedom when we have to stop trying so hard to look the part of being a Christian, to look the part of having it all together, of being some good Christian that has their life all figured out. Our churches are full of people that are like that, trying to look the part, trying to say, look how great I am. I don't have any struggles. I'm just living for Jesus and I'm wonderful. No, as people of grace, We don't have to pretend to have it all together because God sees us at our worst and still chooses to love us. God sees us as we don't have it all together and God says, listen, I still choose to set my favor and my blessing on this person because I'm doing a work in their life. That is why here at Restoration Church, one of the things we say again and again and again is we celebrate progress, not perfection. Because we recognize this idea of sanctification that when God begins a work in us, He's going to continue to work in us. And someday when he returns, we'll be finished. We'll be complete. We'll be, we'll, his project in us will be done. But guess what? Until that day, God's still working on us. So we don't got to come into church and, and look like we have it all together and pretend that we're better than we really are. No, we can be real with where we are. 
Here's my warts. Here's my struggles. And God's still working on me to redeem me and change me. Are you known as a person of grace? Do you extend that grace to other people? Reality is, I don't think we can actually be a Christian and just continually be jerks to other people. Because again, if we've received the grace of God in us, that grace flows through us to the people around us. And it transforms us and changes us. That we become known as a person of grace and love. That doesn't mean we're perfect. But are we known as a person of grace and love to the people around us? Like Stephen, are you known as a person who is walking in the power of God? <laughs> how, many of us, how many of us spend our life trying to accomplish this life on our own strength, our own wisdom, our own flesh? And it's just a struggle bus, right? It's just a constant struggle. God, I'm trying to do all these things just right. I just can't get them just right. This is where, again, the secret to living the Christian life, which is not a secret, is to walk in the power of God, to allow God to live in us and through us. Uh, Jesus said in John 15, he said, the one who remains in me and I in him, he produces much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from him, we can do nothing, which means we have to allow him to work in us and through us. That if we're going to be what we ought to be, Moms, if you're going to be the mom you're supposed to be, dads, if you're supposed to be, if you're going to be the dad that God calls you to be, the spouse that God calls you to be, the employee that God calls you to be, the, the mentor, the friend that God calls you to be, listen, you become those things not because of your own strength, but allowing God to work in you and through you. That's where the power of God is found. Father, you're known as a, like Stephen, are you known as a person of wisdom? You know, God has given us such incredible treasure in this book right here. He's given us such incredible treasure to know him, to know who he is, to know how God works in this world. How many of us don't even open it, though? How many of us allow that book to sit on our nightstand or to sit in our car for a week and then we'll bring it out next Sunday and we'll listen to the pastor's sermon. This is why we want to put resources in your hands like this where you can understand the word of God more because that is where the wisdom of God is found. Listen, if we're going to give our life someday for Jesus, if we're going to be willing to be a martyr, that decision starts today. It starts now. That giving our life for Jesus, it starts in living for him today. That is the opportunity for you today is that you would make him Lord of your life, that you would make his story the one that you are pursuing. Matthew 14, Jesus said, anybody who wants to follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever will save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will find it. What benefit is someone who gains the whole world but loses his life? Let me close with just saying, as heroic as Stephen's story is, it's cool to get excited about the story of Stephen. Stephen is not the real hero. 
Stephen is following the example of the real hero, and that's Jesus. See, throughout the story, we see so many similarities to Jesus and, and Stephen. Jesus was filled with a spirit and had a ministry that was unrivaled in wisdom and authority, just like Stephen did. Jesus, like Stephen, was accused of blasphemy before God. Like Stephen, Jesus was given an unjust trial and refuted his accusers with power and wisdom. Like Stephen, Jesus was led out of the city and was murdered in an excruciating way through the cross. And like Stephen, Jesus, while he was being murdered, he prayed for forgiveness from the very ones who were murdering him. You see, Stephen is just following the example of the real hero, Jesus. Yet Jesus, his death was even greater. Because Jesus, unlike Stephen and any other hero who's going to die for a good cause, Jesus didn't just die as a good example. Jesus died in our place to save us from sin. Jesus is the true Lord. So that those of us who live for lesser lords, who live for other stories, Jesus saved us. He died to give his life as a way to make us right with him. That even when we have that stiff-necked resistance to him and what he's trying to do in our life, he still chose to love us, to make a way for us to live within his story He's our Savior. And that's the invitation this morning. It's to deny the other lords and forsake those other stories and make Jesus the life that you are living for. Make him the story that you are pursuing to transfer your hope and trust and salvation from any other thing onto Jesus. And he stands here today ready to save you, to receive you, he stands here today to say, I love you. Come and follow me. Join the story that Jesus has purchased for you. He says, let me be your savior. Let's pray.